do this, share this meal with their Israelite neighbors, then they would have been spared that judgment as well. So this last one, God makes the sign, he makes this, um, this provision, but it requires faith and action on the part of Israel. And that's important because some people, especially Protestants, have this allergic reaction to anything that's, that reeks of having to do something for their faith, especially if you come from Reformed traditions, Calvinist traditions. It's almost seen as a scandal that you could have anything at all to contribute to your standing with God. Uh, but yet, in Old Testament theology, we see that that was always something involved on the part of the worshiper. God did the delivering. God's the one who sovereignly brought them out of Egypt. No Israelite could say they rescued themselves. But their partaking of that deliverance did require an act of faith and an act of obedience on their part, or else they would have forfeited the deliverance that God had sovereignly provided for. So it's this unique balance between sovereignty and free will and all that kind of stuff that theologians get into uh, discussions over. But, but throughout the Old Testament, it's just assumed that your faith will result in obedience. And your obedience is done out of faith. And they're two sides of the same coin. Only much, much, much later, uh, post-Reformation, or maybe around the time of Augustine, when people start trying to pick apart faith versus works and pit them against each other. But you don't see that in the Hebrew Bible or, I would say, in the New Testament. But anyway, we ended last week with the Israelites, uh, verse 28, the Israelites doing what the Lord commanded to Moses. And so verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the thrones, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. This lets us know that this, God's judgment on these firstborn was not for their sin. He wasn't, he wasn't punishing the firstborn for their sin. This was a communal sign to all of the nation and all of the world watching. Does this mean every firstborn that died went to hell? No, the text doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't, it's not even in that realm of thinking. So we can't say that the judgment was on them, the first one, and the other people got off free. No, the punishment was on the people who were left there, grieving the loss of their firstborn. And we know it's not based strictly on human sinfulness because it says the cattle, the firstborn of the cattle died. And, they, you know, cows don't sin. Um, they're cows. They eat grass and chew on food and sit there. So... Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing or, or crying out. Um, uh, yeah, there was that, that same word that mirrored the Israelites crying out to God in their slavery back in chapter 3. It's the same word that's used here. There was loud crying out in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night... Pharaoh sent word to, NIV says summoned, but we know that he didn't see him face to face again because of how the last chapter ended. It's trans better translated sent word to or sent command to or um, communicated to Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship or serve. We've seen that word worship is the same as serve. Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said and go and also bless me. So Pharaoh's finally reached the point. It only took the death of the firstborn in his entire nation for him to finally relent and give in. And even that is temporary, as we'll see in the next couple of chapters. So he says, finally, you know, go and bless me. And that's kind of ironic because the last time an Israelite blessed the Pharaoh is when Joseph blessed the Pharaoh who brought them down into the land and saved Egypt from famine and starvation. So 
The Egyptians, verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. And remember, this is how God told them to prepare for their feast, that they wouldn't even have time for their bread to rise because they were going to eat it on the go. So they did. They got a to-go box, put their dough, in the, wrapped it in their clothing, wrapped it in their cloaks, put it in the troughs that you needed on, put those on the shoulders, hit the road. Um, the Israelites did as Moses had instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Israel leaves Egypt not as slaves with just the clothes on their back. But they leave Egypt with great wealth. God had promised all the way back in Genesis 15 that this would happen. Go back and read Genesis 15. If you weren't here, what was that, two years ago when we were studying it? Uh, if you weren't here for that, go back and read Genesis 15 because this is the fulfillment of Genesis 15 when God said he'd send, he'd bring out uh, Abraham's descendants and he'd punish the land that they had enslaved them and he'd bring them out with great wealth. Because remember the promise from all the way back in Genesis 12, 15, 18, 28, on and on this promise to the seed of Abraham is still in effect. I will bless those who bless you, those who curse you, I will curse. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. All of that promise to Abraham's seed is now being carried on through the collective seed descendants of Abraham in this section. So God's bringing them out. He's not bringing them out half-starved and scraggling along on the, in the dusty road leading from Egypt to Canaan. He's bringing them out in regiments. The text has already used that military term to describe them. He's bringing them out as an army. And he's bringing them out as a conquering army with the loot from a, from a successful battle, so to speak. And he's doing it all without them having had to lift a single finger or attack anyone or wield any weapons whatsoever. God's army is different than human armies in the picture he's painting here. And later in Israelite law, when it will describe the laws for servants, when you have a servant, you cannot keep him or her for more than six years. They were indentured servants, not slaves like we think of the word slaves. After six years, you had to not only send them out free if they wanted to go, but you had to send them out free with provisions, with gold, with money as compensation for the six years that they served you. So very, very, very different from any kind of thoughts that we have or we had in this country's terrible history with slavery. Uh, the biblical view on that, the biblical approach to that was much different, and it was all based on the fact, when you read later in Exodus and Deuteronomy, God says, remember, you yourself were slaves in the land of Egypt. And so that was to color how Israel was to treat future people who would serve them as well. So they come out being... Um, being provided for. They have enough gold, they have enough silver. They have enough gold and silver too, just within a few chapters, they're going to make a whole golden calf image idol thing to worship out of this gold and silver. Later when they get towards, uh, when they're out into the wilderness after Mount Sinai, they're going to have enough to build the tabernacle out of gold and silver and bronze and all these materials and fabrics. So they're coming out pretty loaded. Like, they're, they're wealthy. God's sending them out and providing for them. He's not calling them to go out without providing for them. He calls, he equips. 
He's going to tell them, build my tabernacle with the stuff I've already provided for you to build. So there's that element of if they are faithful, God is faithful as well. So uh, verse 37, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. They were, there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them as well as large droves of livestock with flocks and herds. All right, pause here real quick. One, Succoth, Ramses, we don't know where those spots are. They're somewhere in the, the Delta region of Egypt between the, the Sinai Peninsula, that triangle area. They're kind of somewhere up here. This is Egypt and Israel was up here. So none of the places in Exodus are able to identify with pinpoint accuracy. Keep that in mind. If you look at a Bible map in the back of your Bible, or any, it'll always have question marks by all these spots. We don't know exactly where they are. Um, there's some good reasons to think we know where some of them are, but in this case, we just know they're on their way out of Egypt towards what we would know of as the Sinai Peninsula, perhaps even into the Sinai Peninsula today. Now, the text here, and this is, this is where it gets tricky. Verse uh, 37 says, there were, NIV says, there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So, this gives the estimates, and some of your study Bibles may even say this. They say, well, if there were 600,000 men, then that means that for every man, there was probably at least a woman and one, maybe two children. So this was somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million to 3 million people leaving. So that's a big number. That's, Charlotte has what? Do we have a million in the, in the greater Charlotte area? So like three Charlottes leaving. Uh, those numbers are pretty remarkable. And what's, uh, what we have to be honest with is those numbers are astronomical and they're completely unaccounted for in this part of the world. This is where biblical archaeology starts to come up and say, oh, wait a minute, Bible. We don't have any archaeological evidence for that many people in the, there weren't even that many people in the whole Near East at this point in history. So how in the world can, can the text say, imagine three million people, like that, I think that's a population of like Chicago or something, walking on foot, camping out around the central sanctuary. Just the logistics of that boggles people's minds. And so some people who defend the traditional wording that the NIV says is like, well, God provides, he did it miraculously, and it's just what it is, we have to accept it. But a number of conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical scholars have said, this NIV translation's not actually the best way to translate what's going on here. The Hebrew text says that there were 600 elef, is the word, elef, E-L-E-P-H, or E-L-E-F. Elef, 600 Elef left uh, the land. Elef can mean thousand. It is the Hebrew word for thousand. That's true. That's its later meaning. Its original meaning was cattle, oxen, and then it came to mean tribe or clan or small group. It was an agricultural term first before it was later a numeric decimal number. And so what a number of scholars, an example if you're one to read it, Doug Stewart in his Exodus commentary, um, he talks and gives a history of the word, and he says, Eliph is, is the word for regiment or clan, because it says there were 600 Eliph of, and it doesn't say men, it doesn't use the word men on foot, it uses the word foot soldiers or infantrymen. The word ragli in Hebrew, it's, it's a word for, it's a military term for infantrymen. And so he and other, a lot of those Exodus uh, commentators that you'll read, they say it should be translated 600 regiments of soldiers came out of Egypt. And, and so well, how many is that? 
you know, total number of that 600 regiments of soldiers, probably in the neighborhood of 7,200, maybe 7,000, something like that, which would have put the whole population between 28, 38,000 people coming out. It's still an incredible, it's still an incredibly large number. Think of like Bank of America Stadium coming out of Egypt, and that might give you much more of a historically accurate view of what the text is saying, rather than trying to figure out how two, three million people could have moved across the desert all in one day and all through the Just the logistics of it becoming problem. So the only reason I'm mentioning is because you can just read it through and not even know if you're just reading the NIV or some other translation, not even realize that this is a big deal apologetically. This is a big deal when it comes to defending the faith because skeptics look at this and they go, see, this is why we know the Exodus didn't happen. It's just made up. We know that the numbers weren't that big. We know there's no evidence of that many people in the Sinai at that time. We know that that's just ridiculous. And the only reason you believe it is because you don't know how ridiculous it truly is when you think about it. It's important to realize that that's not the meaning that the text requires us to have. The text doesn't require... Now, could it be translated 1,000 and there were literally 3 million and God provided for them miraculously? Sure. He's God. He created the... Once you allow for God creating the universe, anything else is a snack, right? Any other, you know, a, a man inside a giant fish for three days, not a big deal when God created the universe. So it's not a case of, well, we can't believe it because of, it's just too impossible to believe. It's a case of, we don't have to believe it because the text doesn't demand that we believe that. The text just demands that we believe that 600 Eleph came out of Egypt along with women and children. Whatever that number comes out to is what we can just accept. So it's just, it's one of those, as a, as a biblical scholar and teacher, you'll, uh, I see this a lot, especially with skeptics, especially if you look online, you try to look at people analyzing the Exodus, and you'll see people ridicule the Exodus account over things like this. And translations that don't give you the other possible meanings of this term, which I don't think NIV does. They don't note it in their footnotes here. Uh, they may note it later in the book of Numbers, but here they don't. They, they, they force you into having to defend something that the Bible itself doesn't necessarily teach. You end up wasting a lot of time and some intellectual credibility with anybody you're trying to talk to or converse with about this. So when we're thinking about the Exodus, do we know how many people came out? No, we don't. We know how many elephs came out. Do we know how many people were in an elephant? No, not really. It's an approximate number. It comes from agriculture where you'd have like a, one oxen and then a bunch of cattle around them and that would be called an elephant. And that was later applied to groups and, and fighting forces. And so we don't know. So you can just translate it as 600 clans, 600 regiments, 600 squads, whatever you want to think of, groups of fighting men. Israel was being already shaped into an army, God's army, because their purpose in leaving Egypt was not to just go roam the desert Canaanites that he had all announced back in Genesis 15. So it's important. Keep that in mind. I don't want to beat that horse to death, but it's worth noting because it confuses or it, it opens up all kinds of things that aren't necessary when you're having to defend the faith. Uh, so anyway, back to the text. So, verse 38, many other people, or some translations say a mixed multitude, went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock with flocks and herds. So it wasn't just Israel that escaped. Many other people, Egyptians, maybe other wandering peoples, maybe Cushites, Ethiopians. We know Moses is later going to marry a Cushite, an Ethiopian woman. Uh, and his brother and sister aren't going to be happy about it, and God's going to play a pretty fun joke on them. Uh, but we know that groups of people other than Israel came out and became Israel. 
And that's important to always keep in mind. We haven't even gotten out of the second book of the Bible, and already Israel is not ethnically based. It's not racially based. It's covenant based. That's why there are books like Ruth in your Bible, named after a Moabite woman, when the Moabites were supposed to be a cursed people. Well, Ruth clearly wasn't. That's why there are people who are faithful in the line of Jesus himself who were Gentiles. From the very beginning, Israel was an inclusive people. It did not center around your parentage. It did not center around your race. It didn't even center around your class or your wealth. It centered around whether you were willing to enter into the covenant that God made with Abraham and then extended to the people of Israel, which we're coming up to because it's going to happen in Exodus 19. So it's crucial to keep that in mind. God's chosen people were always more than just one race of people or one tribe of people. There were always people who followed him, including here, this mixed multitude. So uh, verse 39, with the dough they brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. So think of like saltine crackers. That's basically what they were eating. Bread without yeast is like a big cracker. Um, now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, that same day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. There's a military term again. All the Lord's divisions or regiments left Egypt. So after 430 years of slavery in Egypt, they finally are redeemed. Remember the time scales we always talk about. Longer than we have been a nation in America is how long they were enslaved in Egypt. So God has to teach them about himself. 430 years is a long time for the memory of one family that turns into tens of thousands of descendants to be preserved. And so God is having to, going to have to instruct his people on who he is, who they are, what their purposes are, all of that. And that's what we're reading in Exodus. This is being written down for those people, actually for their children, because this generation will die in the wilderness. But this is being written down to tell these people who they are, why they were enslaved, and why God brought them out before they set off into the promised land. So, uh, because, verse 41, at the end of 430 years, on the same day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Now it's going to talk about the Passover meal. There was only one Passover ever celebrated, and that was in Egypt, and it just happened a few verses before. Now every Passover festival after this will be a commemoration of that Passover meal. And so God's going to preserve. This is how you're to celebrate it. This is how you're to remember and pass on the, the history of who I am and what I've done with you and how I've brought you out of slavery into freedom as my people, as my army. And there's this neat little wordplay, because the Lord kept watch or kept vigil over them to safely bring them out that night. Every Passover year, they are to keep watch, to keep vigil over this ceremony that God's instituted. They are keeping vigil because God kept vigil. They are keeping watch because God kept watch. It's this they are re-participating in this event every year as a people, as a family. So how are they to do it? Well, God's going to say, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover. One, no foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident, a hired worker, may not eat of it. So that word foreigner, 
means someone who is not part of the community of Israel. It doesn't mean somebody who was born somewhere else. It means somebody who is not circumcised or if they're a woman, not willingly obeying Torah. What this is establishing is Passover is for covenant people only. It's a meal that celebrates the redemption of God's covenant people. It's not a sentimental holiday. It's not a Hallmark holiday. It's not, let's celebrate Passover with, you know, my buddy from Egypt and my buddy from Philistia and my buddy from Babylon. You know, they don't believe in God, but let's just get together and have a Passover. None of that. God says, absolutely not. This is a sacred holiday. It's to only be celebrated by people who are per presently in covenant with me. And it's very similar to the New Testament sacrament that we have, which is communion. What was communion? It was Passover. What did Jesus do when he lifted up the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant? Well, he was supposed to lift up the cup at Passover and say, this is the blood of the covenant, meaning this covenant. But he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So often as you gather and do this, remember me. He was taking Passover and like extrapolating it or, or, or you know, Passover 2.0 or however you want to think about it. He was making, he was basically saying everything Passover pointed to and, 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 and cast shadows towards now is being fulfilled. So in a lot of ways, the New Testament uh, communion meal is supposed to be a reflection of Passover. And that's something that we've lost. We lost it around the third century in Christianity as they de-Judaized everything. But it is a Passover meal. So that's why when you take communion, in a lot of churches they'll say, this is for believers. This is for people who have given their life to Jesus, not who are thinking about it, not people who like Jesus, or not people who want to have a moment to take a picture of their babies for their child's first communion or whatever. This is for people who have said yes to the covenant of God. And it is not for people who have not made that decision, not because there's something wrong with them, not because they're inferior, not because we want to have an insider's club, but because it is a participation in the covenant. There's something happens when you celebrate Passover, if you were a Hebrew, or in the New Testament, when you celebrate this communion meal. Something takes place, something is going on, and it's not for people who have not said yes to the offer of it. So, so think about, you know, if you ever wonder about communion, or if you're at a church where they celebrate and they say, hey, anybody can come, come on, you know, ask your leaders, ask them, say, wait a minute, how does this correspond with, with the nature of God as revealed in the scripture? How, how does God, did he really completely change his whole nature about what he wants his people to be and how he wants them to commemorate? And it'd be a good discussion to get into, um, regardless of how your church does communion. So, no foreigners eat of it, any slave you involve eat of it, after you're circumcised, temporary residents, hired workers, not to eat of it. You have to be part of the covenant community. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. So in other words, don't just come over, hey, we're here for Passover, you know, families get together, all right, we're going to take our part and go, see you next year. None of that. This is a communal meal. This is a sharing of fellowship. This is a gathering in one home of one or more families sharing this meal together. Uh, take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. In other words, don't break off a leg shank and take that home. You know, don't break off a hind quarter and take that home. Eat it there. In fact, don't even break any of the bones. Just eat it there. That, that'll have huge significance later in the New Testament, obviously, when Jesus' crucifixion is likened to the Passover way. And, and it'll, it'll make note that none of his bones were broken 
in fulfillment of him being the ultimate Passover lamb. But that's way in the future. Um, the whole community of Israel, the whole community of Israel must celebrate it. It wasn't optional. If you were a part of the community of Israel, you celebrated Passover. If you did not celebrate Passover, you were not a part of the community of Israel. It's as simple as that. It was an obligation. It was part of who you were. You couldn't claim the title of Israel and disregard the Passover. So let that have implications for today. When you think about the new covenant meal and communion. Oh, I don't need to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a necessity for the communal acts in fellowship with each other that signify who you are as a community of God's people. Uh, an alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. In other words, he must become part of the covenant community. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. In other words, no covenant, no Passover. The same law applies to the native born and to the alien living among you. Verse 50. All the Israelites did what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Again, another military terminology, which is ironic because it's a bunch of slaves roaming in the desert. And God says, looks at him, he doesn't see an army, uh, he doesn't see a group of slaves wandering, he sees his army, his people, his regiments coming out of bondage. And they see themselves as, you know, we've been baking bricks for 400 years. And, you know, who are we to fight anybody and be an army and be this and that? So they're going to be how things look from heaven's perspective and how things look on the ground. There will be a contrast between those that will run all the way through, especially in the later books of the Bible like Revelation. Um, so we're ended for now. Chapter 13 next week It's going to look at a concept of the firstborn, which is incredibly important. And the actual crossing of the sea, the Charlton Heston moment where he spreads his arms and the water flows back. So be here for that. Have a great rest of the day. Tell your friends, tell your coworkers, and we'll keep doing this if you keep coming.